0: Welcome to FreightWaves Live, and events podcast. I'm Tim Dooner, and this is the show where we bring you back to past FreightWaves events, take you inside of upcoming events, and capture the moments and keynotes from the top thought leaders in logistics, freight tech, business, and media. I'm here with Chad Prevost today. He's the host of Off the Supply Chain, as well as my co-host on What the Truck, Chad, you kicked off Transparency 19, my first event with the company. It was an amazing time, but tell me all about it.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was my first cold open. It was exciting. Uh, thanks for ringing the cowbell at the end of it. Uh, but uh, you know, I was kind of just telling my journey about. You know, I was like, was welcoming people in at 8 a.m., telling them to get some coffee, come on in, uh, break the ice, uh, and letting them know all the highlights, the fun things that they would be. Uh, experiencing and doing and telling a little bit about my story, my wild journey, uh, coming to the, the land of logistics, how, you know, we're not all, we're not all called to logistics, but sometimes logistics calls us.
0: Yeah. Well, it was an amazing time. The energy was, was through the roof. I've never been to an event especially in the logistics industry with that much passion, with that much intensity and with that much L E D from the keynotes, (laughs) the amazing ones. One of them we're going to feature today is with Gary V the guy you introduced to speak to Craig. There was also Bradley Jacobs.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and at the very beginning too, I had a great interview with, with Craig right before, you know, he even talked for a, a good while with, with Gary, a fascinating conversation. You're right. Brad Jacobs, uh, was was a highlight to his just complete honesty, his unscripted uh, approach. Yeah, but I think this this past May at Transparency 19 was like sort of a turning point to me in, in our events where I was just like, we are the Super Bowl of Freight.
0: Oh, yeah. It was the WrestleMania Freight, the Super Bowl of Freight, <laughs> the World Cup yeah. of Freight, all captured in one amazing event. But the thing is, yeah, we got to top it. We are I, planning on putting on the most badass event of the decade in Chicago. Yes,
1: and I, I just think with all that we've got coming up, and and just our we're just getting more seasoned, and we've just got more talent th- than ever. It is going to even be better. Yeah. Yes,
0: that show is coming up. Freightways Live in Chicago. It's November twelfth and thirteenth. Here's what they're in store for. Freightways Live Chicago is the premier freight conference of the year. Featuring quick-fire demos of the latest technology, keynote presentations from top-ranked speakers, and visionary fireside chats designed to keep attendees on the cusp of the latest trends and factors impacting the freight industry as we head into the new decade 2020. Data-driven discussions and presentations will provide deep insight into current, near-term, and forward-looking trends that are shaping the freight and logistics market. When the daily sessions end, you'll also have the evenings to network and connect with leading minds in the industry and engage with your peers or see all that Chicago has to offer.
1: Yeah, as the industry is becoming increasingly digitized, FreightWaves Live Chicago will also showcase technologies and services that use quantitative data to project and monitor the freight markets. Whether you're a shipper, carrier, broker, 3PL, investor, VC, association, technology company, analyst, media representative, academic, or an executive in the world of pricing, finance, or operations, FreightWaves Live Chicago will provide the fuel you need to propel your business toward a successful future. So something for everyone. Get your team ready for success in 2020 and beyond. At the best freight conference the industry has ever seen. Chad, we mentioned some of that
0: nightlife. Porsches, man. Who brings <laughs> Porsches to a freight conference? But they were there. There
1: was that J.B. Hunt 360 party. There was that Triumph
0: A barbecue.
1: Wow, I know. Cooperation, love all around, and just fun times.
0: Yeah. Who's on the docket this year? We mentioned the legendary keynotes at... Transparency 19, we got a whole new slew of amazing thought leaders this year.
1: One of the very top ones that comes to mind to me is the keynote Jordan Belfort, the the controversial wolf of Wall Street.
0: Yes, and also, I mean, that's that's the more recently known movie. There's also a great one of the same story called Boiler Room. Oh, yeah. We also have Howard Green. He's the best-selling author of Railroader. That's the book on Hunter. Harrison
1: also, a founder of Canada's Business News Network, a true legend. Yeah, I mean Hunter Harrison was a CEO four times over. Wow, right? And also Ben Mezrich, the guy has done so much. But you know, he is the best-selling author of "Bringing Down the House," the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions. And if you've seen the social network, you know this one, The Accidental Billionaires, the founding of Facebook, and his latest, Bitcoin Billionaires, a true story of genius betrayal and redemption. Also a fellow Bostonian. Wow, you guys are something.
0: Don't miss out on the badass guaranteed Freight Tech event of the decade. Get your tickets today at FreightWaves.com. Click on events.
1: And now for the fireside chat that kicked off Transparency 19. Here's the Freightwave CEO, Craig Fuller and Gary V, one more time. Oh, there you are. <laughs> hey brother. Good
2: to see you. How are you doing? Yeah. Really you came from the other way. So, like I said, we don't know what to expect. So.
3: <laughs> right off the
2: bat. Well, I'm so excited to, to have you here. We have a mutual friend. We actually have, have a couple of mutual friends. So, Ted Ailing. Yes. Uh, and so, I think, is Ted here? Uh, I don't know if he's in the audience. Um, but uh, interesting enough, that's how I actually first heard about you uh, was through Ted. And uh, Ted's like the underground mayor of Chattanooga. sure is. Today. But one of the things that's interesting is this New York media company that you've built actually ended up opening a Chattanooga, Tennessee office. Yes. I'd love to hear why. Why Chattanooga?
3: You know, I think everybody in this room, whether professionally or personally, realizes serendipity. And you know, a lot of different nuances that you never expect come into play. I, I had a new book come out um, several years ago that I wanted to promote. And my favorite thing about being a marketer and a salesperson is I prefer to be a marketer because then it comes to me. But when I have something I have to accomplish, I have to go into sales mode. And so, when that book was out, I wanted to. It to do well, and I created packages where I would trade, you know, an enormous amount of book sales for me showing up somewhere. And I get this email from Ted in Chattanooga, and he came in heavy and hot, and I was thrilled. I mean, I'm I'm agnostic about where I go. Uh, when you have the KPI of the results, you go anywhere. Um, I didn't realize there wasn't a direct flight to Chattanooga. That was a little bit complicated. But other than that. I got there and then what took over is the same reason most of the good things in my life have happened, which is within the first eight minutes of being on the ground, I just, you know, intuitively was like this is an interesting place and it wasn't, you know, a lot of times later on people manipulated too. It was the fiber or this and that. It was strictly the human beings and just the gut feeling I had navigating through the different businesses and people that I met. At the macro level, I'm trying to build a very serious communications company and my biggest concern in building it is getting too much in the silo of New York or LA or London and so I give a lot of thought about where to open up offices to make sure that you're getting a flavor of all the different mindsets and angles and nuances around the world. Like, you know, as somebody who, you whose know, career took a big turn when he started investing in Silicon Valley startups, what you were just saying on stage that I caught, you know, not only are the costs and competitive landscape of talent different in Silicon Valley and Chattanooga, but the entire ecosystem of how one sees the world, Mm -hmm. and I think one thing everybody in this room can appreciate is perspective is incredibly important, and you need different perspectives to achieve big things, and so there was a very macro ambition for me to open offices in places that weren't like LA, San Francisco, New York, and Nuga ended up being the first one.
2: <laughs> we, as a Chattanooga native, I certainly appreciate that. It's interesting. Um, I talked to a lot of, you know, we sit at the intersection of Silicon Valley with freight, and, and we're venture-backed as well, so we're in constant dialogue. And I, I can empathize and relate with the founders in the valley, um, but in many ways, I find that even the most successful companies that have raised venture funds that are in San Francisco, oftentimes don't have as deep context about the industry that they're just in. They have a ton of success, and you can't you, you have to give them credit for the success. But it's interesting because someone who has deep market context, oftentimes those companies don't. I'm wondering when you look at you're outside of New York, outside of San Francisco. And, and a lot of freight companies are geographically dispersed in the Midwest and the Southeast. What do you see that's different about those particular entities than out in the Valley?
3: Well, in the Valley, you know, as many people here know, an enormous percentage of those companies are started by extremely young people. And so they have no context of any industry. <laughs> uh, the other thing that many may know in this room but may not, is one of the biggest reasons I've walked away and didn't start a venture capital firm on the back of being an early investor in Facebook and Twitter and Uber. I had all this momentum. And somewhere about seven or eight years ago, I realized how much I didn't enjoy you know, investing and more importantly, investing in companies that weren't actually building companies. They were building financial arbitrage machines you know, most of the companies in Silicon Valley today are built to raise another round of fundraising and then sell to a bigger company, or right now, because the IPO market is hot, go public. It's all math, it's all Excel sheet, it's all CAC and LTV. It's legitimately not, built. like, I'm not kidding here, and this is, it's not a raz. it's just not what I'm interested in. I'm far more, like, you know, I come from a, growing up in a liquor store that was a family business baseball cards like I'm a merchant I'm a build a business kind of guy um yeah I just it's very awkward to watch and sit in meetings where everything is about pandering to more capital not to executing for your customer
2: so so I mean is it a bubble or is this just a a phenomenon you think it's a bubble I do and where, where is the end? Is it Uber's IPO? Or yeah, is I that? mean,
3: if I knew that, I'd be quicker to my path of buying the New York Jets. <laughs> I don't know. And, and, and by the way, I could also be disproportionately wrong. Like, I, I think I'm already wrong. I would have never thought that we could be here 11 years. Po- you know, the way we solved 2007-89's economic issue felt like such a Band-Aid that I thought was going to lead to such horrible behavior, which it has, Um, But I would have never thought that the global economy and the U.S. economy would have been able to sustain 11 years of hypergrowth during that kind of bad behavior.
2: Just funding unlimited federal know,
3: Look, I think one thing I hope you'll appreciate here for the next 55 minutes, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'll talk about things I know, and I won't talk about things I don't know. The macro rationale to the global economy is something above my pay grade. It's just Mm -hmm. not where I spend my time. You know, obviously there's an enormous amount of capital coming in from SoftBank, from Saudi Arabia, from other places that I think continues to maintain it. But this is the greatest era of fake entrepreneurship ever. Um, Because there's just so much money in it, right? I mean, for everybody in this crowd that's over 40 (coughs) years old, like I am myself, um, we didn't grow up in a world thinking that our idea was worth $4 million. And that is absolutely what the average you know, highly educated 21-year-old sitting in college thinks. She or he thinks that whatever idea they come up with, they should go and easily be able to get a million dollars on a $4 million valuation for their Uber of sneakers.
2: (laughs) But it's interesting because there have been some successes. And so how do you define, you talked about fake entrepreneurship versus real entrepreneurship. How do you you know when you look at a deal, how do you know which which is which? You don't. So what, So you've made some significant investments, early stage investments. Yeah, but I've stopped. Uber was one of those, right? Yeah.
3: I mean, but, I, but I've stopped. Okay. And I've stopped because in 2006, 7, eight, nine, 10, when I would sit down with an entrepreneur, she or he was an entrepreneur because entrepreneurship was coming out of an era where it wasn't on a pedestal. Right now, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur because it's legitimately cool, which is just wild for me to think about, you know, like, just the way, you know, being a businessman or woman wasn't cool in 1992. I mean, it was Bill Gates, you know, like, Mm -hmm. fucking nerd, you know, like, (laughs) so, so now that everybody wants to put entrepreneurship in their Instagram profile, and that's cool in the club, that is just bizarro world, but that's also done what sports and rapping has, which is everybody wishes they are, Mm -hmm. and What's different about entrepreneurship than rap and sports is when you say you're a rapper, someone's like, all right, rap. And then if you <laughs> suck, everyone's like, oh, you suck. You know? <laughs> and when you say you're a basketball player, people are like, at the YMCA or, or going to the league? But when somebody now says they're an entrepreneur, it's just accepted. And we, we haven't matured into, are you a successful entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur? And I, you know, to be very frank, I'm concerned about it because I think w- the one thing I love about entrepreneurship is it's binary. Either you're going to win or you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of people right now that are not built with dealing with the emotional baggage that comes along with a public loss. Um, and so I spend a lot of time with young entrepreneurs around the mentality of like, when you lose, you know, are you ready to take that ridicule and what are you going to do? Um, but you don't. I think the one you know, one of the ways you can is, look, in the rare occasion that I'll make a investment these days, I like people who've already built a real business. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the ways you can do it, you know, as I've evolved, I get way more into the jockey than the horse. So much of the money I've lost in investing was the idea was great, and I would have run it successfully, but I bet on somebody who'd never run a business before. And again, so many people here know running a successful business has way more to do with emotional intelligence than the ability to know how to make a good decision about a product or service. You can build a great SaaS product, you can have all your CAC and LTV properly figured out, you can have a lot of things right, But as a CEO, if you do not know how to build a comfortable culture that creates retention Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and many other variables, you're going to be vulnerable through actual business long term. And so um, I'm very much on the kick now of of the jockey over the horse.
2: It's interesting you say that because I think about my own life and I think the most significant times in my life have been when I failed and failed in a really sort of public way. Um, and, and,
3: and just for my own clarity <laughs> a, uh, a macro failure like out of business or a and then micro failure, failure? No, no, I'm talking
2: about a business failure Like I, I
3: macro like macro. out of business
2: yeah yeah. well I for me it was out of business yeah because
3: so. I think and I apologize for jumping in and then please continue but I think I'm obsessed with micro failures I, I prefer not the macro failure right
2: like I always the think bu- the business survived I just didn't so. <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah, um, so that's a personal. Like macro when you run failure. out of cash, it, yeah. it, it, they make decisions. But I, I wonder. It's interesting because you think about that, and that you know sort of informs you much better because you sort of have this. I think the thing for pattern me was, recognition, right? What's that? You've seen this movie. Well, before. you've seen it, and, and for me, it was this first time. I always sort of. Being in a, uh, having a family that has successful entrepreneurship, you sort of see the model of what a successful entrepreneurship does. As you're a kid growing up and you, you see your dad build business, he went through tough. I mean, I remember having conversations. There were times that they were you know tight on cash and things were not always in the early days were not always great. But I didn't see that as a kid because I idolized my father um, and I looked to him as this sort of god of business. And I never understood that he had gone through these that had he had had tougher skin because he had to do it and he had seen his father do that and stuff. And so. The f- when i truly sort of fucked it all up when i truly like it, it was in for me so first time i ever felt what it was like to completely just be done yeah. and had failed in a way that people knew and that was humiliating but what what it taught me was that i could i could i could do it again i i could i could i i that, that it, it was painful and it sucked and you never want to go back there But you also are now, you know you can survive it and you can rebuild. And I think that was a much more powerful lesson than if you just had unlimited success. And in some ways, in my early 20s, I had a platform inside of my dad's business that enabled me to build a very successful business. And so I was sort of insulated and I thought, well, that's what success is. Because you you have this platform. It's easy to build a really successful business when you already have an infrastructure. Having to do it on your own is quite different. And 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 that was sort of the first time I realized it. And, And so... It's interesting you say that um, you look for successful businesses, but I also imagine the character of, of the story is also important to you. It is, but to, to your point, like the path to success is not straight, right. and so
3: you're right. You look under the hood, but you said something super important, and now I'm just going to veer off for a second because this is going to bleed into parenting as much as it is entrepreneurship. I, you know, the greatest thing that happened to you was getting punched in the mouth. Mm-hmm. The, the greatest reason I believe that we're living through such fake entrepreneurship right now is not only is there an enormous amount of capital in play for these 22 to 25 year olds, but they're the generation you know, that was parented in a way that tried to eliminate losses from the ecosystem. I mean, this is the generation of eighth place trophies, right? This is, you know, my favorite thing that's going on in society right now is 45 to 60 year olds, you know, clowning on millennials and making fun of them. And I keep looking at them and I keep reminding them that you parented these
2: kids. (laughs) Everybody gets a trophy, right? Yeah.
3: I mean, and so, you know, we've demonized to these kids losing. I love losing like micro losing, especially Mm -hmm. more than macro losing is incredibly motivating. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing more fun than losing regular season games. Right. You know, you learn from them. You <laughs> yeah. know, come the playoffs, you'd like to build on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think adversity is the foundation of success. Being born in the Soviet Union, living in a studio apartment with eight family members when I was a kid, going on one and a half vacations my entire childhood, my parents buying me nothing because they didn't have like the money nor the mindset to do that for me, is fundamentally the reason. I'm successful at entrepreneurship. I'm not scared of anything, nor do I care about anybody else's judgment, mm-hmm. which allows me to navigate very quickly, and my losses are my losses, right. and my wins are my wins, and they both feel the same. When I hear the accolades, or when I get razzed, I basically can't hear them. I'm just so in love with the process, and that's, and that's what getting up off the floor is. You had no choice, you just, it's in your DNA to wanna play. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, and I think that self-awareness for the executives and the founders and the different people in this room is an incredibly important foundation to the conversation right now, both for the entrepreneurs, but also for the key executives and employees of an organization and the responsibility of the number one to put players in the best position to succeed, um, is a formula that really matters.
2: It's, it's funny you say that. I uh, so I, I didn't. I I think entrepreneurs have this thing after a, sort of a big loss, where you have this. You know, people writers talk about writer's block. They can't. I couldn't think of anything that was interesting. And I remember, I took a job selling employee engagement services, which was not fun at all. Like, the, the fact that the business exists is sad. Um, and I hope nobody's in that business here. Um, but. I remember I went back to Chattanooga and I went, and speaking of Ted again, I was in his office and he goes, what the hell are you doing? Like, why aren't you an entrepreneur? Like, why don't you get back in the game? And he was the guy that sort of pushed me to say, get back into it, like go back and do it. And the thing was this time, it was, I was sort of fearless. I didn't care. I knew what it was like. And I, uh, I burned a bunch of cash day trading because I thought that was how I was gonna make my, my fortune. <laughs> don't do that either. And um, I opened up at a Bank of America, a zero, inter- I had good credit was the only thing I really had. And I opened up a zero credit, uh, zero balance or zero APR credit card, and I ran up $50,000. Bank of America was my first investor. And it was fun to kind of get back into the game. Uh, they don't know that. Um, I did pay it off, uh, which was actually fun. But um, it was fun to get back in the game after having done it and sort of seeing that, hey, there is a sort of a natural desire. But I think what drives – has driven me, and I would imagine it drives other entrepreneurs, that, is that they've had sort of this fake success. They thought they were successful. And then it all went away, and then they had to the go back and build it again. And well, I Well, that's what
3: form. we're going to see in the next chapter of this era. The amount of people that celebrate when they fundraise is laughable. I mean, 98% of Silicon Valley startups lose money each month. Like, I don't know if you heard, but it doesn't take a hero to lose money each month. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a lot of them think that they're successful, yet they haven't made a single cent in profit, which is the lifeline of a business mm-hmm. that isn't in a position to raise more capital. And I do think that what's amazing about the game is here we are and we're talking about when will it happen and what's the bubble and literally tomorrow you can wake up and Bear stern can happen and it starts to domino the other direction. And it's that quickly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got an entrepreneur sitting now in year three and she's about to turn the corner, right? She's been losing 80,000 a month and now two more months and she's going to have this or that or the other thing and we're going to be making money and all of a sudden, you know, they, you know, they're on, you know, third and a half base on raising their next round, which will give them that air cover and boom, the news comes out in the morning that XYZ Bank does this or the mm-hmm. college debt crisis has done Y or, or China did Z and the investor pulls out, nobody else is interested and six months later they're out of business.
2: Yeah. So what is your message to those startups that there's some in the room?
3: Make profit.
2: <laughs> it's that simple, right? Yeah. I can't argue with that. So, You know, like...
3: <laughs> and, and to the startups in the room, like, if this kind of hit you, like, huh, that makes some sense, or you've got your Spidey sa- senses going, like, you go and audit your expenses. Mm-hmm. Like... What are you paying for fruit bars? Or, you know, like, you know, who's the three employees that bring no value to the company anymore, but you have a sense of loyalty? Like, run an actual business. And I think that overfunded, lots of money in the system is no different than being a super spoiled kid. You know, like, if your parents buy you a BMW on your 16th birthday, you're soft. (laughs) <laughs> you are there's nothing wrong with being soft there's nothing wrong with being soft but you're fucking soft
2: <laughs> so let's talk a little you mentioned culture, let's talk a little about culture and I, and I I've, you've talked about this is that people who are, who are who are dragging down the culture of a business should be, they shouldn't be there you should get rid of them immediately I, oh, I, I'm a big fan of this let's, let's talk you about that, that? This is, I mean, this is, it's interesting because um, there's, there's a, a view of Hire slow, fire fast. Uh, and there's also a view of if you have someone who's cancerous to your business, I think a lot of businesses get caught up in trying to it's document and coach. and <laughs> it, just, it just goes nowhere, right? If they're cancerous. I wish
3: most businesses were into documenting and coach. What most <laughs> businesses are doing is, Harold's a dick, but his numbers are remarkable. Yeah. That's what's really happening. That's what I'm referring to, that... If you've got somebody who's driving top line revenue or she or he is crushing their numbers, what most companies are doing is they're looking at surface level. They're like, oh, if we fire Carol, we're gonna lose those three accounts because she's so wired in there. What they don't realize is the hidden lost revenue that's happening with Carol or Harold destroying the culture and completely messing up the continuity and speed of the macro.
2: So what do you do, from your point of view, what do you do if you have, if you, you have someone who's really kicking ass, bringing the numbers in, and they're just a, they're, they're a jerk? What do you do with them?
3: What I do, one, one man's point of view, is I sit them down, I look them dead in the face, and I say, you think I'm joking because you're delivering, but I'm not joking. And if you can't be a good human being, I'm going to fire your face. <laughs>
2: That's that's pretty right there, right? That's what I do.
3: And I do it and I do it. You know, I'm a big shot on stage now and I'm acting tough. I do it I do it in a conversation. I'm like, "Look, I'm not kidding. Like I know you don't believe me because you've worked in other places that value dollars and I value dollars. I just value slow dimes, right? And so you're going to screw me up. You're not liked. There's a problem here. A, it's my fault." because this is my company, so tell me what I've done wrong to put you in this position. Do you hate Stevie? Or is something going on at home? Like, what am I missing? Nine out of 10 times you're missing nothing. It's just unfortunately, you know, because before you even get to that conversation, you're trying to figure out what's wrong. Um, And then three out of 10 times, remarkably, people do take a left turn, because they get scared straight, or they had it in them, or normally they're insecure. And so I spent 40 of the 50 minutes on trying to make them feel safe. Yeah. And, uh, and seven out of ten, time, ten times you fire their face.
2: <laughs> How long do you give them?
3: You know, it's funny. It's run the gamut. And, you know, when I think about these 25 conversations as we're talking right now, one makes me laugh because it, I gave them 24 hours because literally the next day they, like, were ridiculous. Yeah. Um, other times it's been a couple weeks, a couple months. Um, not usually more than two months after that conversation for me, but everybody has their own tolerance. It's remarkable what happens when you make that decision. The buy-in from the rest of the crew that you knew, because most employees think that the big boss, that she or he have no idea what's actually going on. That they live in an ivory tower, that they don't know what's going on in the details, that that employee's tricking them, that they're looking the other way because of money. So when you deliver on culture, the buy-in and the macro is remarkable, and what it does for the business is extraordinary. I'm a, I'm a pot-committed buyer of this thesis that you have to fire the best performers that are
2: destroying your culture. How big is your team? What's the size? VaynerMedia is 1,000 people. Wow, okay. And how, how long have you guys been around? What's the We've been around for nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. And so you've hired a lot of people. Yes. You've also interviewed a lot more people. Yes, When you bring someone into the organization, do you interview every single candidate? I do not. I did the
3: first 300, I would say. Wow, okay. Um, And I do, obviously, at a certain seniority level. um, And I try to meet with every employee within the first year. Mm -hmm. um, But I don't hire everybody. And that's probably a good thing, because I'm probably an all-time ridiculous hire. (laughs) Um, I usually hire people within the first three minutes in my head,
1: and actually I'm the same have, way. I have
3: no. I literally walk. Out, I have no like, questions yeah. for you. You're gonna lie anyway. Like, who cares? Let's we'll just get to it.
2: <laughs> I, am the same way. I, I, I What's your
3: biggest problem? Well, sometimes I work too hard. <laughs> <laughs> like
2: interviewing is such what is bullshit. the worst what is the worst response you've ever gotten on that question? that i
3: hate that question like i hey, work too hard what's your shortcoming like what's a cliche reason you struggle sometimes you know gary sometimes i get so passionate about my work that i work extra hard and
2: burn <laughs> myself out get the fuck out of here <laughs> so what is the best answer to that question or the best type of Put The end. truth, right? <laughs> like, sometimes I
3: undermine my fellow employees because I want a bonus, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, honestly, I go on intuition. I, I hire remarkably fast. Mm-hmm. I fire slower than I'd like, but I've gotten faster over the last 25 years.
2: Yeah, as you get more confidence in the- I hate
3: negativity. Yeah. And in that, I think I've created too much entitlement and I've kind of, like, tried to fix the bad boy too much and over time i've just gotten better experience matters
2: so i'm curious you were one of the first investors in uber um at the time it was a it was an unknown startup what about that business and talking about culture uh, a lot has been said about uber's culture and i'm wondering when when you first heard that pitch a what did you like about the pitch and then b what is your perspective on the culture issues that have been written about Uber?
3: So I got a long-winded story here, I'll try to go fast. Number one, and if you literally Google my name and Uber and Paris, like right now on your phone, Gary Vaynerchuk, Uber, Paris, you'll read a Business Insider article. This is just fun for me one day for my grandkids. I was, not only am I an early investor in Uber, we'll get to that in a minute, because I'm not as early as I should be because I passed on the angel round twice. Like literally Travis came back to me and had coffee with me in San Francisco and kind of like begged me to invest because we were such homies. My first book, Crush It, the only people I acknowledge in the book is my family and one random person, Travis. He was investing at that time before Uber and like read the book and gave me some good feedback. Like literally that's how close I was with Travis and I passed twice on the angel round and if I wrote my normal 25 to $50,000 check, I would be looking at somewhere in the ballpark of 500 to $800 million in wow. the next couple of months. So that would be considered a loss in entrepreneur land. Um, uh, but I was literally in the room when it was invented. Garrett Camp, who was the founder and inventor of a company that some of you might remember called StumbleUpon, which was a cool website back in the day, literally, literally I can it's crazy. I'm sitting in the couch post this keynote I gave at Webb, 2008, I think 9. He's sitting on the ground right over there having like some whiskey and he looks up at like eight people and he goes, "You know, what do you think about a lim- what do you think wouldn't it be cool if on your phone there was an app and you could order a limousine that could pick you up right away?" And I remember the first hot second I'm like, "That's a rich person's problem." Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm like, "Yeah, okay, fine." But like and and then a couple months later I saw him and he's like, hey, that thing we're doing, it's real. It's called UberCab now. That's the original name of Uber, UberCab. And at first, they, it was a side project because Travis was investing. Garrett, I think, just bought back, Stumble upon from uh, the company AOL. I can't remember who bought it. And they literally hired another person to be the CEO and outsourced the building of it. So it was a side project. So the biggest reason I didn't invest was because it was a side project. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of months later, Travis jumped in, ran it, and it became what it became. As far as the culture, you know, listen, at the end of the day, this is why I speak so much about culture. I'm completely, on. Un- I have no concept. Uh, during that era, Travis went super like, head down and I spoke to him like three times I spoke to Garrett zero times I, I had you know I'm not on the board I'm not mm-hmm. on the advisory board so I have as much insight to the culture as you do which is you're reading it through the press and through employees posting on blogs and so you take it for what it is but ultimately it was enough pressure for Travis to not be running the company he built which is something every entrepreneur would fear oh, yeah. and not want to happen um, and it's why it's super important.
2: It is um yeah, there's been the IPO coming up. He's not going to be the ringing of the bell. Do you think that's the right decision for Uber?
3: I didn't know that until they're, right they're now. They're not letting him on the stage. That's too bad. You know, it's... Look, what I don't know is how... Look, everything stems from the top, so the culture is, is on him. Um, I'm fascinated by the board's power. Like... I'm very caught here. Three variables running through my head in real time. One, I'm skewed because Travis is my friend. Mm -hmm. So already I'm not a clean piece of data. Two, even if he wasn't and I didn't know him, um, I'm always pro-operator, (laughs) anti-board, right? Because the operator's in the trenches. The board is on the sidelines pontificating. Mm. Um, I don't know why they decided to do that. I understand it. You know, the, the, it would probably be massively di- distracting. I'm sure everybody wants the stock to do well. Mm-hmm. Travis is on to his next thing anyway. I, I wonder how much he cares or doesn't care. But, you know, as somebody who's already built one business that he doesn't operate anymore, which was the building of my dad's liquor store business into an e-com giant in the wine space, watching my best friend and my dad operate that company is heartbreaking.
2: I know. I know the feeling. I can. Because they're not
3: running it the way I would want to run it, <laughs> and so when you build something, and it goes into a different place, it's tough. You know, I have a lot of. I mean, ultimately, like, in a lot of ways, that's the right decision. In a lot of ways, it's the wrong decision. I think ultimately, like, who gets to judge? I don't know.
2: When you're at Thanksgiving dinner or your family, do you did you have a tendency to tell them what to do or what you would do?
3: We had such a weird ebb and flow, right? Because I got into my dad's business. My dad comes to America with $100 in his pocket and in seven years owns his own liquor store. It's such a remarkable accomplishment. I come into my dad's business. It's a $3.8 million business doing 10% gross profit. Um... And I build it from that to a $60 million business in six years with no capital, no credit line. And so there's these two massive dynamics in play, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, immigrant makes good, whiz kid grows extre- like it's a it's a real interesting tension. And you couldn't find two operators who agree only on 10% and then disagree on 90% okay. more than me and my dad. And so there was constant friction. Um, which was very aggressive in a, in a good way and a mm-hmm. not so good way, family business dynamics. Now that I've been out of it for, let's say, really out of it for the last four or five years, I, I don't because I'm pro-operator,
2: <laughs> anti-board. Have you learned the hard way? Uh, like, no, no, I
3: haven't. I, it was, I don't want to be a hypocrite about that. The second I stopped running it day to day, they got to run it. Yeah. And my two cents are bullshit. I keep them to myself. They ask me, a lot, and I'm thrilled, yeah. but I, I'm just unbelievably not interested in throwing my two cents at something I'm not willing to operate, um, because I don't like when people do that to me. Yeah. I love when people are like, I love when employees are like, Gary, you know what you don't know? I'm like, tell me, Sarah. <laughs> tell me what I don't know. You know, like people, you know, think about for everybody here, when you started your career and you managed nobody, how much you shit on your manager, and then the second you started managing people, <laughs> you got a totally different perspective, right? Remember all those things you thought about your parents until you became a parent? <laughs> you know, I just, I just think people are funny when they don't sit with all the context. Right. One of the, my favorite reasons to sit with employees, and I do it a lot, is for those conversations. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets a little bravado and starts throwing stuff at me, I always treat that with respect, and then I throw 87,000 things at them that they have no idea about, and then they leave with their tail between their legs, and I feel pumped.
2: (laughs) I I, I can empathize with that, Daniel Pickett. So (laughs) um, uh, I wanted to dive in. Do you have a board, by the way? No. You don't have a board. You've completely bootstrapped this business. Yes. And it was... Your, your dad's wide business that you built online, you built this massive business, and you parlayed and I built that. For,
3: but I, I didn't parlay it. What I did was, this is an interesting part of my story, I built my family business, but I'm an immigrant, not an American-based family business. What that means is, it's the dad's business until he dies. Hmm. So I built this business from 3 to $60 million, and at 34 years old, because we poured all the money back into the business, and I never paid myself more than $100,000 a year, I go and start VaynerMedia with my brother, and I have to start it in the conference room of Buddy Media, (laughs) a great SaaS business that did extremely well and sold to Salesforce, because I had no money, Mm -hmm. right? So you have this great accomplishment on your resume of building this monster business, and you have no financial benefit from it. I had shit credit. I had nothing. So at 34, I bootstrap Vayner. Um, The one great thing I had hovering, we mentioned it earlier, even though I didn't pay myself more than 70, 80, 100,000, back to like making money versus spending money, running a p and I lived in a shitty apartment, I bought nothing and I worked every day. So I had, over this eight year period, you know, $100,000, $200,000 saved and then I invested all of it. I took my bank account to zero because I decided Silicon Valley was gonna happen and the first three companies I invested in were Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, mm-hmm. right? And so, I'm rich. <laughs> um, <laughs> But more importantly than that, <laughs> when I started Vayner, when I started Vayner in 2009, it was already obvious that Facebook was going to win. Mm-hmm. It was obvious that Twitter was doing super well. So I had no money, but I had these assets that were looming, that I had some confidence on, and then I bootstrapped uh, VaynerMedia.
2: And and it's just completely through social media. That was how you built it, YouTube or
3: VaynerMedia, the company itself. Mm-hmm. At that point, I had written. Ooh, right when I started VaynerMedia, Crush It came out four months later, and it was the book about social media that became kind of this book on the back of what I did in the wine business more, but it built awareness around me, which led to a couple of first clients for Media, Pepsi, Gillette, and that started the process. And
2: why, why did they want you? Is it just because you could reach a, you reach a different audience? I, a, at
3: that platform? point, had 800,000 Twitter followers, and Pepsi, the business, had... 400. And they were like, why do you have that? (laughs) And people were starting to understand that there was something in the air about social media. And at first, our company was uh, $5,000 a month to do community management for brands. So Campbell's (laughs) paid us $5,000 a month to reply to people on Twitter. And remember the old Facebook where every comment showed up on the wall? And so we, you know, people be like, Campbell's, your soup sucks. And we're like, sorry, you know, you know, so at first it was community management. Um, and, uh, and then it evolved from there.
2: So, so, you know, freight, transportation is a, a very older, it's, you know, it's, it's a very old industry. And, um, up until recently, there hasn't been a lot of venture investment. And so we're, we, you talked about the bubble, the bubble didn't, You know, I think there's arguments of whether it is a bubble, um, and I think there's different points of view. It's still, there hasn't been a substantial, if you take like fintech and, and, and broader consumer plays and broader internet plays, it's a very small amount of money. To us, it's growing really fast, and it's growing exceptionally fast. But one of the things that I find interesting is the traditional freight companies don't understand marketing. Companies that, the only ones that are doing a good job of it are the big parcel companies, which is really you know FedEx and UPS, which is because they're more
3: consumer centric.
2: That's right. So the B two B. So there's a lot of folks in this room that are predominantly B two B.
3: And what you guys have massively felt the benefits of is something that I've been yelling about for a half a decade, which is if you're in B two B, you have to act like a media company, not an advertiser. FedEx mm. and UPS are advertisers. You know, you're acting like a media
2: property. We, we do, but I, I think the broader audience in this room, when you look at Mar- what is it? I'd love for you to tell them to spend money with me, but I'm not going to do that. Um, What is it that you would recommend to folks in the room that, as you think about marketing and branding, you talk a lot about taking advantage of social media, take advantage of Facebook and LinkedIn is one that you do. I'd love for you to to dive into the future of media and marketing.
3: The advice that I think will play for everybody in the room regardless of what you do, including if like you're the PTA president or thinking about running for local office, like I have no idea what you wanna do professionally or personally, but the one thing that has been tried and true and I keep things extremely simple, is you have to reverse engineer the audience you're trying to reach and you have to tell them something that brings them value, not you value. It's very simple. It is the simplest model of I all think, I think
2: most, most marketing and PR agencies that we talk to, it's you get the copy. If they write it, it looks like marketing copy. Nobody's going to read it. When, we, when our journalists write it as an editorial piece where it's written in a way that's written more like a journalist read it, it gets read. It, but because it, it's not overflowing. And that's not just about us. But because a PR company and the, a salesperson
3: are in the business of selling and a journalist is in the business of informing. It's fundamentally different. Like, the biggest reason I've popped is every piece of content I put out on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, my podcast, I'm desperately trying to figure out how does this bring value for the other person, mm-hmm. not how am I going to sell VaynerMedia or sneakers or wine. The end. It's, it's, it's unbelievably basic. I, this is, like, Bible shit.
2: Yeah. And you, you pump out a lot of content, and you do that, I mean, a substantial amount of content. One of my favorite things... Is your micro videos is taking you have a videographer that follows you are they here by the way? Hey, it was just uh, Jason somewhere <laughs> i 'm sure. Well, we have it filming right there, so um, but you, you film yourself and you take parts of that and turn it into product i 'd love for you to, to hear
3: Three years ago, I took a very interesting move that I probably debated for six months. Talk about somebody who genuinely doesn 't is very capable of taking negative and positive feedback lives a life where he's comfortable navigating through judgment and even for me, it took me a good six months to say okay, am I okay with a human being following me around and filming me at all time? That is heavy charlatan, heavy like, (laughs) it's uncomfortable territory especially three years ago. (coughs) But I saw vlogging voting on YouTube and the vloggers were first person. And I'm not. I'm, I, I'm running a huge company. I'm an executive. I'm not going to be walking around with a camera like this. I'm also not a filmmaker or have that talent. But I knew that if I would film my day to day, that I could put out a vlog and show real entrepreneurship, you know, instead of mm-hmm. like the watches and the baby giraffes and traveling and you know, I wanted to show people like meetings and work and like the stresses of actually running a business. Uh, and two, I knew that I would be able to make this micro content you know, the amount of pieces of content that I put on LinkedIn that get two, three, four million people to see it and all it was was 47 seconds. I mean, it's gonna happen here. One or two of these questions is gonna be cut down and put on LinkedIn and it's gonna bring awareness to who I am which then will bring awareness to the things I do or the things I believe. And so... Yeah, I believe, not only do I believe every business is a media company, I believe every human's a media company, and I also am very comfortable with somebody not liking that. People don't like personal brands, or when I make that statement, they're like, ugh, and that's fine. You don't have to be a media company, but you can be. I'm not telling you that you have to do it. I'm telling you that there's a lot of opportunity around it.
2: And it's not that hard, right? With social media, I mean, there are, in trucking, there are truck drivers which have... 10, 20, 30,000, 40,000 followers. They use a GoPro or they use their iPhone, and they're in the cab talking about a story. They're breaking stories faster than sometimes we break them, and we have professional journalists. And it's interesting because they bring perspective, and they have these sort of cult-like thoughts. They're heroes of the driving community, but there's no investment. And I'm wondering, you have companies that do billions of dollars that do a poor job of communicating their brand and their values there, whether it's for coding drivers or, or extending the brand, then these truck drivers, and, and not dismissive, they're smart as hell, that do it in the cab of their truck. And, and, believe, and you've I, talked a lot about that.
3: Watch this. Real quick, um, if you can appease me, uh, it's early, it's good to get blood flowing. Real quick if you are now a human being that mainly watches HBO Go, Netflix, Hulu, or DVR, that if you mainly consume your TV now in a OTT, Netflix kind of environment, please stand up, real quick. Just stand up if the far majority of TV you watch outside of live sports is done in this environment. I'm gonna wait, I wanna make sure everybody does this. Let's look around, I want everybody to look around. Let's all agree that this is not a 15-year-old teenage crowd, right? (laughs) And, geez, 80, 90%, you can sit, thank you, 80 to 90% of this audience now mainly watches television without even the ability to see a commercial, Yeah. right? And for the 10% that were still sitting, that when they watch network TV shows, right, or cable news, that when it goes to a commercial, they grab their phone and live their life. They're not sitting quietly and patiently to consume a TV commercial. billion is spent in America a year to produce and distribute TV commercials. Not a soul is consuming them. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl, yes, I would buy Super Bowl all day long. But that's exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. It's happening in every facet of every part of the land. People are spending enormous amounts of money on what worked yesterday, and they're demonizing what's happening today.
2: Yeah, I mean, I look at my, look at my kids. My, my son's, I have two kids. But well, real three. quick, and I apologize,
3: the re- and, and then I'll let you go. The reason I said this is not a 15 year old crowd, the argument about Facebook and YouTube and social media, everybody goes into I look at my kids and they do X. I'm trying to remind you that these old fuckers do that too. It's <laughs> fair. But, right? it, but, it, but that but that matters, right? Because what businesses do is they're like, Gary, I, you're right. I see it with my kids. I'm like, no, 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 no. The 57 year old guy that you're trying to reach, he's not seeing that television commercial either. So let's have a conversation. Yeah.
2: No, I, I think that's it's spot on. Um, getting to to kids, they're my kids. YouTube. They don't watch. They don't watch anything but YouTube. We have every channel that you could possibly get. They don't watch any of it. One of them watched Amazon Prime video and stream shows. They're not tuning into cable. I don't even think they turn on the box. Um, And And we have it. And
3: nobody's running here from this conference to run home and carefully go through their direct mail. Right. Right? And nobody here is clicking a banner ad. Yeah, you're right. And nobody wants to open an email spam and people hear LinkedIn spam everybody but never open one of their LinkedIn spams and so there's all this stuff that's going on tons of money and energy spent and the reality
2: is it's not reaching the consumer so how how do you, if you have a marketing executive in this room what is the message for them? They've they've taken over this this new this old school business, billion dollar business they're responsible for marketing it and the rules have changed on them. What would you say they could do to really drive brand equity and education? Become educated. And how, how? What is the? What's the goal there?
3: To me, going on the internet and typing in things like how to, like literally typing into Google how to start a podcast for a B two B company. Uh, literally going into Google and saying how to run LinkedIn ads to land seven-figure contract deals. Like the amount of things that I've seen happen in the B two B space on SaaS companies I've invested in, or GE or SAP or clients I've worked with, all of them over-index when they act like media, and all of them under-index when they try to do 1999 B two B marketing. Mm-hmm. Like there's like it's unbelievably to to watch people still buy full-page ads in a B2B magazine.
2: In a, in a print magazine. That's right. And, and, and it's interesting because... But
3: so real quick, I have empathy for these executives because, you know, a lot of them actually know what to do, but the company they work for rewards through their internal scoring the old game, but they haven't created metrics how to measure the new game. Yeah. And I keep telling them, why don't you just measure business results? not impressions, like literally I had a client that said, Gary, look, we just keep doing PR because we have a meeting every quarter and it says we got 47 billion PR impressions and I laugh because they know, I know, everybody knows that they got 47 impressions, not 47 (laughs) billion, but they count all these crazy reporting. So the first thing a very senior marketing executive needs to do is go have a real debate with the board or the CEO about how marketing is measured if it's not being measured by actual business results.
2: You know, we, we, in my business, we look at a lot of the media in, in, in this space and, and have looked at some acquisitions. And the challenge is that a lot of the, these publications are print-based and the decisions in freight are happening faster and faster. Know, same day next day service most of the transactions most of the tendered transactions are within 48 hours so when these when you go out on print and you print something it, the market has already moved on you by the time it gets there but there is still a substantial amount of investment in print publications and those businesses are dying but they still the mentality of those organizations is still very print centric when we hire a, a writer from a print publication the legacy print they, at first, it's a sort of culture shock of like, wait, I've got a report. This is up in 30 minutes, and it's just a different world. It's because the, mo- the, the news is moving so fast, um, and, and I, I just think it's a different paradigm shift. I mean, newspapers all – I think i would read 60% of newspapers between the next five years are expected to fail because they just can't respond to the digital environment. But you have new media properties. Cheddar, you guys, are, are actually doing quite well.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this is just such a fun conversation to have. I'm fascinated by people's inability to understand that technology changes our culture. Like, we used to ride horses to get around. <laughs> we don't anymore. Yeah. You know, like, the radio was the number one item in our society. Boxing and baseball became, and horse racing, were the major sports in this country because it was a great sport for radio. But then when television came, that's when football rose because football is a great television sport. Like, things evolve. And, you know, again, this notion of holding the past on a pedestal because you understand it or because it's safe is why companies go out of business.
2: So what do you, what do, you do? Our business is the, not freightways but the logistics sector. Yes, Is is in many ways under attack by Silicon Valley. It's attacked by Amazon. It's attacked by retailers. It's just constantly the regulators. Everybody wants a piece of this massive industry, and it's it's becoming uh, really a hot sector. I'm wondering what's the message to a company that that doesn't have innovation as a core part of their business. How do they respond? By letting themselves die. But what do they do if they don't want to die? Innovate. And how do they do that? What's the secret?
3: By looking at the leader of the company in the mirror and see if she or he is capable of innovating. Everything stems from the top. If you, run, if you have a company run by somebody who right now is sitting and saying, well, I'm retiring in 18 months and I don't give a shit about innovation, you're in trouble. Or not talented enough to know how to innovate. Like, you know how many A's, number one's, hire a CMO and say you figure it out, but they don't even know how to judge it? How are you a CEO in 2019 and don't spend 100 hours to educate yourself on how modern communication works so that you can judge it within your own organization? Mm-hmm. Gary, I didn't grow up with this stuff. You didn't grow up driving, you figured it out. <laughs> like, I know you didn't grow up with it, but it is your job, to, it's required of you to know how to run your business. And to me, how your business markets and communicates is as important as you knowing how to run the finances of your company. It's just that some people don't want to put in the work to get updated on the new platforms and the new world, and that's to their peril.
2: One of my investors on my board, when he first invested in a company, and our marketing wasn't great, We, we sort of evolved, and he told me, he goes, The most successful companies that are able to raise capital and are able to sort of disrupt it have really strong understanding and instincts about marketing and branding is very very important to them and i look at the transportation space and a lot of times the cmo is also the head of sales, and they're putting in the same person and they seem to be to be very disparate skill sets a sales person is quite different i'm wondering if you could talk about your observations in that
3: yeah i I a marketer and a salesperson are fundamentally different with the same objective, with different time frames for that objective. Um, most companies are market, are, are salespeople. Mm-hmm. Like they want short term results. And building brand takes a long time. And bringing value to a customer with the ability to then monetize three years from then is a totally different skill set than cold calling somebody and getting a sales. Yeah. And And there are people that do both. Listen, I'm very proud that I do both. I've done both my whole life. I like both, Mm -hmm. which is probably why I can see how different they are. I think somebody who's sitting in the audience who feels like they're both can understand this. Man, they're different. And if you're one or the other, the other one's very foreign. You know, salespeople shit on marketers, right? Because they're like, it's all poofy, poofy, schmoofy stuff. We get stuff done. I made some (laughs) money today, right? Those, what do they do? What is that sign? What is that logo? Like, and then marketers make fun of salespeople because Nike doesn't sell. They built a brand, right? Right. And so Intel makes fun of you know, like so. They're two very different things. I don't mind a CMO sitting at the top, but she better know both, and she better know how to have a leader in each function that triangles up to her, and she needs to keep both sectors super accountable for different KPIs, and they have to have empathy and understanding for each other of how they work together.
2: And KPI tied directly into sales. What's the revenue you're actually generating? Yeah, is? but
3: how one judges that—I I caught the last part as I was getting mic and you said something that's near and dear to my heart, which is we don't give a crap about our short-term profits. We're playing long game. So for me, you know, every business I build is in perpetuity, and so as you can imagine, the marketer is being judged. In a much longer time frame. However, I don't need them like slacking off and like golfing all day. Like, like you, you have to keep people accountable. I got to make a profit.
2: Yeah, right, but, right, yeah. but
3: like, they're just two very different things. And, you, you know, I, I do think in how fast the world works now, a marketer can show a business result within a year, but I won't judge them in the first three and a half quarters.
1: Hmm.
3: Right. I think the difference between sales and marketing is sales, if we're using football as an analogy, has to put up points in every quarter really to be successful because they can't close the gap in the fourth quarter. Marketing could be down 31 nothing and win 34-31 if they did all the right things in the first three quarters that put no points to the board in Q4. They right. can. I like that. <laughs> That's gonna be a clip on LinkedIn.
2: <laughs> I like it. Well, we just have a few more minutes. Is there anything as this business, as this industry goes through massive disruption, you've seen it work out in media and, and, and or seen it change in media. What is it you would, I know you're not a transportation professional by, by trade, but you've seen a lot of industries go through this evolution. We're at the if you sort of compared us to media, we're I'm, 1995. I'm paying,
3: you know, because of Ted and because of other things, I'm, I'm, I'm dangerous in my knowledge of what's going on now because of investors and people who reached out to me, the Coyote deal, like I'm flirting with this space, here's what's about to happen. You, you put it right, which is technology and like the world is technology and innovation are gonna eat up every sector. It started with the bookstore business. Bezos just decided that's what he wanted to do and if you owned a family bookstore or a regional bookstore or even a global bookstore like Borders, it was your turn. That happened to be 1997. I I spoke at the black car and limo conference one year after Uber launched, ironically, just randomly in my speaking career and I stood on stage and said, you guys are looking, the whole vibe there was we're gonna use City Hall and the government to stop Uber? And I said, you're naive, innovation always wins, I don't give a shit how much money you're giving to a politician, and so what I would say is what's clearly happened in this business is we are in the kind of second quarter of the macro innovation and money world realizing there's opportunity to innovate because it's, there's a lot of mom and pop stuff going on, a lot of like, you know, tried-and-true stuff that doesn't map the reality of a 2019 world. And I, I do believe that there's going to be a lot of disruption in this sector, more consolidation, more money brought in, new brands built out of nowhere overnight. And I think people need to heed that call. Like, what value are you bringing?
2: Yeah.
3: Are you a commodity or are you a brand? And most people are a commodity.
2: And, and they should be invested in their, how they define their brand and how they differentiate it.
3: The number one thing in wrapping up, like back to tangible advice, I couldn't couldn't say this more passionately. Every single person here that is empowered to do so needs to go spend the next 100 days having phone calls, having dinner, having breakfast, having drinks with every one of their customers and they need to listen to what they care about. And then they need to go back to the pad and cook that meal. That's all I do. I read my comments you know, left and right, like, uh, you know, I was just talking with your CMO prepping, you know, you, were, you guys were wrapping up, and she's like, Are you always like this on your phone? And <laughs> I was laughing what I was doing. I was reading comments. Yeah. Because the qualitative feedback is the insight I need for the next innovation. Yeah. And the amount of people who hope their customers like what they are doing, or they're trying to force their customers to like what they wanna sell, is fascinating for me yeah. to watch. You know, I, I just don't understand how people aren't spending all their time interacting with their customer and figuring out what they need based on that in parallel with where they see the world's going. It's a very fine line,
2: right? One of my favorite CEOs is John Legier, the CEO of T-Mobile. I've never met him. I think their service sucks. No offense, to T-Mobile, but it's bad network having had it. But I love the brand. I love John Legier because he personally answers text messages. He personally tweets it, and he also, you can communicate to him. He's a personality, and I think he has a very powerful, uh, he's built this very powerful brand not only around him, but around this idea that they're they're punching the AT&T and Verizon in the face.
3: That's right, and there is a huge variable of success for Team mobile in that delta against the quality of their product. That story is the best because... Uh, one thing that I the reason I want everybody to go and talk to their clients is because inevitably they're going to fix their product or service mm-hmm. and one thing I always tell people when they hire VaynerMedia if I'm in the room or if I'm meeting with an executive I'm like look what we do well is we speed up the process of everybody knowing about you and if your product sucks that only means the world's <laughs> going to know your product sucks faster <laughs> and so you know I love marketing communications I think It is the foundation of our society. If you really play out the chess moves of innovation, what ends up happening is most things become a commodity and communications and marketing become the delta. And so there has never been a more important era to understand your marketing and communications. And as we're wrapping up and I see the clock, please stop being a headline reader and start being a practitioner. The amount of people here who have power to make calls that make decisions about Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube or podcasting because they read an article versus the fact that they've actually run an ad or run ads or have tried to execute is remarkable. The amount of people that come up to me like, Gary, you love Facebook marketing, but what about Cambridge Analytica? And I'm like, what about it? The amount of people that have thoughts about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica or things of that nature but have no idea what it means, you know, I couldn't be more passionate in reminding everybody this will be the great era of practitioners, not headline readers, and everybody's got two cents on why something doesn't work for their business, yet they've never actually done it. And that, to me, is hypocrisy at the highest order.
2: Well, the reason these people are sitting in the room, to your point, is because we built our brand on social media. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, we figured it out. We had zero experience of doing this. Zero, and we reverse. We figured out the model using data, and informed uh, information. That's why. Folks and have, and have to wrap up,
3: I think words matter. I think people, because of the way social media grew in our society, started as a kid thing. The word "social media" throws people off. Guys, social media is a slang term for the current state of the internet. If you think the internet's important, you may want to really understand how to use it for the benefit of what you're trying to accomplish.
2: Well, Gary, thank you so much. Really enjoyed thank that. You. Let's give him a round of applause.
3: Great. Thank you.
2: Thank you. If you
0: enjoyed that one, come back for more. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are heard around the world. On our next episode, we'll have more Transparency 19 and moving forward, we'll take you on the stage and behind the scenes of every Freak Waves live event. You won't want to miss it.